You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. So when I was in elementary school, I read a book called Summer of the Monkeys. At least I think I did, because literally no one else I've ever spoken to has ever heard of this book before, so maybe it was a weird fever dream. But I'm pretty sure that I read a book called Summer of the Monkeys. And in this book, you have a carnival that comes through a small rural town. And one of the wagons that contains monkeys breaks down, and all the monkeys go free out into the woods. And so they embark on this adventure to be able to catch the monkeys, but the monkeys are very smart. They escape all the different traps until one day they happen upon this idea of a very old form of monkey trap, where they would take a jar where the hole was just big enough for the monkey to be able to get its paw through the hole. And they would put inside the jar something shiny, something to catch the monkey's attention. And the monkeys would reach inside. They would grab a hold of whatever was inside. And then when they try to pull their hand out, they couldn't. Because now their little paw is in a fist, a little monkey fist. And that little monkey fist can't fit back through the same hole. But the monkey very desperately wants the shiny thing that was inside. And so the monkey wouldn't let go and ultimately had trapped himself by his own desire. And that's kind of how most traps work, right? On a much more brutal scale, you have something like mouse traps where you pull the little wire back and then you put some sort of bait inside. Bait is meant to look fairly harmless. And so maybe it's cheese or peanut butter or something that's going to attract the mouse so that he doesn't sense the danger around it. And that's why traps like these work. Because these traps are designed specifically so that they don't look like death. They don't look like imprisonment. But they are. And the animal just isn't wise enough to be able to tell the difference until it's too late. And ultimately, that is what sin is. And I don't even mean on an individual level where we think about temptations that lure us in, but sin as a whole, the entire institution, the entire thing that exists of sin is this one big trap that from the very beginning we see is designed to look like something that is life-giving or pleasing, but in actuality leads us toward imprisonment and death. And just like those animals, we tend to be too foolish to see it until it's too late. And so we're going to talk about that this morning, about what sin is, how it affects us. And then ultimately, as the book of Ecclesiastes has been doing, giving us a less than sufficient answer to that problem and pointing us toward the only answer, which is Jesus. And so we're going to look at a big chunk of Scripture today in chapter 10 and 11 of Ecclesiastes. But I just want to read one passage in particular that we'll come back to over the course of the sermon today. And in chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, he says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we come to you as people who can't get out of their own way. 
people who are wrapped up in sin and brokenness and just need a better answer. God, we thank you that you provide that for us in Jesus. So walk with us through this struggle this morning and help us to see the beauty of the gospel and the vanity of our sin. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things that the teacher has established inside the book of Ecclesiastes, and I think one of the things that we know to be true and that we've talked about a couple times as we've gone through this study of this really difficult book, is that we as a whole, generally speaking, not of course for everybody, but generally speaking, we people as a species are content with just being slightly above average or maybe just average. We're totally good being able to just be good enough. And now, of course, you have the outliers, right? People that go to great lengths to be the absolute pinnacle of athletics or academics or arts or whatever the case may be. People that are willing to put in the hustle, put in the grind, and get as far and ahead as they can. But most of us, even if it's something that we really like or really enjoy, we don't really want to do all that. And so as long as we can just be good enough, we find that to be good enough. And that's especially true when we talk about our spirituality. And we've already seen the writer of Ecclesiastes give that kind of idea there, right? Be not so righteous or so wicked. And we like those ideas. Okay, I don't have to be the best or the most holy or the most righteous, but I certainly don't want to be the most wicked. And if I could just fall somewhere in the middle, that would be okay. And in our minds, maybe even though we don't see it this way, we do tend to look at things like a balance, like a scale. And we think if I could just be a little bit better or maybe put in just a little more work or be a little bit wiser than I was yesterday or than the people around me, maybe that's enough to just subtly tip the scales in my favor. But here's the problem. When it comes to God's economy, when it comes to these things, this is not an equally weighted economy. And as we see here at the very beginning of chapter 10, it's quite clear. In verse 1, the teacher says, Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. The writer here tells us that just a little bit of foolishness corrupts a depth of wisdom. Just a little bit of sin has the power to overwhelm a great depth of righteousness because when God sees these things, they don't register as equal. The foolishness is heavier than the wisdom. The sin is heavier than the righteousness. And so just a little bit of dead fly in the ointment has a power to corrupt or ruin the whole thing. Paul comes back to this idea in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7. And here he's talking about sin in the midst of the church and the power that it has to corrupt the entirety of the body. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. I think this is interesting language here. Because he's not just talking about a little bit of yeast added into bread that would make it rise, which is absolutely true. But he's talking about a lump, a piece of bread being made in a bowl that was already used for creating another type of bread. And so that old bread was leavened. 
And Paul says, even if there's just a little bit of that leavened dough left behind, it has the power to radically change the entirety of this new bread that you're trying to make. And so if you want to be this unleavened loaf, it needs to be cleaned all the way out. You need to make sure the bowl is squeaky clean and there's not even a hint of that leavened loaf left. Man, the alliteration is tough. But in the same way here, We see the writer of Ecclesiastes saying just a little bit of folly outweighs it. Just a little bit of sin outweighs the righteousness. And so we can think, okay, well, maybe then, maybe then I'd have to be more than just a little bit better. Maybe I have to be a little more than just a little bit wiser or just a little more righteous. And so I've got to put all this work and all this effort into, I just need to be as good as I possibly can be and try to tip the scales even more in my favor. Maybe if I just overwhelm the leaven with as much new bread as I can, then it'll be okay. And in verse two, there seems to be a little indication of that. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. And so even there, we get a little bit of of that thought process. I just need to go more to the right. I just need to be more righteous, more holy, and more wise. And that seems like a really good and valid goal. But there's a problem. If we jump to the book of Psalms, Psalms chapter 14, 1 through 3, says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They all have turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Back in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, it says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Romans echoes these words in chapter 3 verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And so when we put together the whole counsel of Scripture here, when we start to let Scripture interpret Scripture, and we look at this passage in Ecclesiastes, we're not meant to look for a way that we can become that wise person who inclines himself to the right, but we need to recognize that all of us find ourselves in the position of the foolish. There is no one who understands who is truly wise, no one who seeks after God, no one who is without sin. Maybe you relate to verse 3, because I know I do. He says, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. This idea of not being able to get out of our own way. And it constantly reminds us of that sin that's present in our lives. Because even when we try to do things as accurately as we possibly can, Even when we try to be as wise as humanly possible, when we try to live out our best righteousness, when we try to follow all the rules and keep all the promises, when we try to walk that straight line, we are always going to find ourselves falling off of that pattern because we are foolish and we do sin and finding ourselves right back in the same mess from where we came. But he continues on. In verse 8, he said, He who digs a pit will fall into it. And a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stone is hurt by them. 
and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it's charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of the fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what he is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. And this is a picture of foolishness. This is a picture of the life of sinners like me and like you. And this is something that all of us relate to here because even in our best tasks, there's nothing inherently bad about digging a pit. But the writer of Ecclesiastes here says that when you try to do this work, even if it's good work, even if it's honorable work, even if it's meaningful work, because we are by nature foolish and sinful, we are destined to fall into the pits of our own design. But again, the teacher tries to make some good out of a very tough situation. And I appreciate the teacher here constantly trying to do this, looking at all the world and all the things that he sees, saying it's all meaningless, it's all vanity, but if you want to try to scrounge out some meaning, then let's do that. And he goes over in chapter 11, in the first seven verses. He says, cast your bread upon the waters and you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way of the Spirit comes to the bones of the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. But in the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So the writer of Ecclesiastes says, well, maybe listen. Okay, we can't escape these things. We're going to dig the pit. We're going to fall in it. We can't escape our own foolishness. But maybe we just need to try to make the best out of a bad situation. Maybe we need to try to live the best that we can, mitigate the consequences, and just hope for the best. But, because again, I feel such a deep, soulful connection with the teacher, he just can't help but bring the mood back down. No matter how optimistic he may try to be, no matter how much good he may try to object in this and say, just try your hardest and maybe you'll be able to get through these things, he comes right back in verses 8 through 10 and just brings the whole mood back down. Because he says, light is sweet and it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years... Let him rejoice in them all. That's nice. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. And that's sad. Rejoice, O man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know all these things will bring you in to judgment. He says, light is good. And you should enjoy the time when the light comes. But there are more days that are dark than days that are light. 
Your foolishness outweighs your wisdom. Your sin outweighs your righteousness. And so there's already the whole thing is stacked against you. But then the word that kind of echoes over this entire passage, he says, for all these things, God will bring you in to judgment. That we're going to have to stand before God, trying to make the best we can, but knowing it's not good enough, with the scales tipped against us, And we're going to have to stand under the judgment of a just and holy God. So when we look through these passages, we find a very deep problem. That the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us that foolishness and sin are a universal problem. John says in 1 John that if we claim to be without sin, then we're lying to ourselves. We're deceiving ourselves because every one of us has sinned, as Paul said, and fallen short of the glory of God. And so this idea of foolishness and sinfulness is a universal problem that affects every single one of us. And that foolishness and that sin outweighs wisdom and righteousness. So we've tipped the scales against ourselves. And this foolishness and sin leads us into places of peril and consequences, but also leads us towards death. And even beyond that, leads us to judgment from God. So this is a bit of a downer. But thankfully, there's a little glimmer of hope sprinkled here in this passage. And it's one that the teacher doesn't even recognize as a message of hope. But I think to see it from that perspective, we have to put on our apostolic goggles, right? We have to begin to look at this passage, the way that Matthew and the way that John looked at the entirety of the Old Testament is designed to point us toward a better hope. Because in chapter 10, verse 5, the teacher in Ecclesiastes sees something that just devastates his heart. He says, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun. As it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. So we have this problem. Sin is a universal problem. It outweighs righteousness. And so what's the solution? Don't sin. But obviously none of us are able to do that. None of us could escape that problem, but that's exactly what Jesus came in to do. In the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And what I love about that passage, as we've looked at the despair in the heart of the teacher in Ecclesiastes, looking over all the world, desperate to just see a little bit of real righteousness, of someone who could walk in wisdom and walk in holiness and finding no one. As the psalmist and as Paul looked over all of humanity and said, there's no one righteous, no one who understands, no one who seeks after God, no, not one. Jesus steps in to be the one. Jesus is the wise and righteous and spiritually rich king that the teacher in Ecclesiastes longed to see. 
And yet when it was time for Jesus to rise up and to claim his kingdom and to claim his throne, when Jesus had the opportunity to literally sit on his high horse and ride in as a king, the perfect king of kings decided to enter into Jerusalem humbly on the back of a donkey. And as we see the picture of this triumphal entry, yeah, there's a lot of cheering going on. We see these crowds following Jesus from outside the city, inside the city, and they're proclaiming that message of Hosanna. He's here to save us. And they're waving their palm branches and they're laying their coats down on the road and they're worshiping Jesus as he rides in. And it does look like a triumphal entry. But it's a trap. They don't know it's a trap. The people aren't aware I think sometimes we tell the Palm Sunday story like there's this maniacal plan in the hearts of the people that they're worshiping Jesus when he comes in and they just pull the rug out and are cursing him on the other side. But the reality is these people that were gathered, these were the people that had been walking with Jesus. And they thought this was the moment that he was going to take the throne and become the king, not just of Jerusalem, but of the world. And so they were declaring that good news that Christ has come to save, but they didn't realize that it was all a trap. But Jesus knew. Jesus knew that he was walking in to a snare. This is a picture of the perfect, sinless Son of God willingly falling into a pit that we created. This is Jesus taking our leavening, taking our spoiled ointments, taking our sin and our foolishness on himself, walking into the trap that was made for us. And they cried, Hosanna not even knowing how he was going to do it. But we know, and we've seen it, and we get to walk through that process each and every year as we remember Palm Sunday and the fact that Jesus entered into that holy city in a humble state. And we can join those voices. And we can cry out to Jesus. We can say, Hosanna, because we are foolish and because we're sinful and because we can't do anything about it. We can cry, Hosanna, because we dig pits that we can't escape. We can cry, Hosanna, because we know that we are sinful and we can't stand before the judgment of a just and holy God. And so we can throw ourselves before Jesus saying, we need you to save us because we know that's precisely what he did. Because he didn't stop just riding in on the back of a donkey. But we see the Prince of Peace walking on the ground like a slave, like a prisoner, carrying his own cross to Calvary so that we could sit and rise as kings, as sons and daughters of God. And Jesus saw no vanity in that. He saw no meaninglessness in trading in his freedom for our slavery. He saw no meaninglessness in trading in his life for our death. He saw no meaninglessness in taking his innocence and laying it down and taking on our guilt before the Father so that we could be saved. See, this Sunday... 
is a reminder of just how aware Jesus was of our sin, of our foolishness, of our weakness. It's a reminder of how aware Jesus was of his righteousness, his holiness, his wisdom, and how willing he was to give all of that up and exchange it all so that he could tip those scales in our favor, so that he could take his perfect righteousness and cover up our shame, so that he could take his perfect wisdom and cover up our foolishness, so that he could take the goodness that he had within him and wrap it around each and every one of us who proclaim the name of Christ so that we can stand before God, not with fear, not with shame, not with guilt, but so that we can stand before the judgment of God with confidence because we plead not our own works or our own wisdom, but the blood of Jesus pleads his name on our behalf. And so if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith or your hope in Christ Jesus, maybe you've never realized how serious sin really is, or maybe you've just been so overwhelmed by the seriousness of your sin and the places where you've messed up and the foolishness that you've seen in your own life, you think that there's no way that you could ever get out of the pit that you've dug for yourself. And it's true. But Jesus stepped into that pit for you. Jesus went into that death, went into that grave for you to be able to raise you up into new life. And if you've never put your faith and hope in Jesus, if you've never gone through the waters of baptism, then what better day than Palm Sunday to start walking in faith and trusting in the salvation of Jesus? If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus and he's lifted you up out of that pit, Let's be the kind of people who live Hosanna lives. Live with that recognition of what Christ had to do to accomplish that salvation for us. To live with the confidence of men and women and children who have been made sons and daughters of God, princesses and princes in the kingdom of God, raised to that place that we never deserve to be. Let's wear that confidence and know that we own Christ's righteousness, but also let's live lives of humble obedience, knowing that it was Christ and Christ alone that has made the way. Because without Jesus, we're falling into our own pits. We're putting flies in our own ointment. And there's nothing that we can do. But because of Christ Jesus, we can do all things because of his strength, his righteousness, his goodness, and his grace. So let's live like the kind of people who have experienced the Hosanna of God And let's worship our Hosanna King.